You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. We're going to begin reading at verse 1, but while you're turning there, by way of introduction, let me just say that every, every Lord's Day is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it's, we, we, you know, the church is historically what we call Easter. The church has historically set um, one Sunday aside where we especially focus on the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, just like we set a, a Sunday aside for the Incarnation. Uh, which we do at Christmas time of God stepping in time, space, and history in the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, this morning, I, I pray that God may enable us to really stare very deeply into the wonder uh, of the resurrection. And uh, certainly as the eye of faith stares uh, into the uh, wonder of the resurrection, to see and behold the risen Savior, uh, we'll find ourselves changed by that. Uh, for sure. We'll find ourselves uh, very much changed by that. Now, this morning, I want to basically tell the story showing uh, Jesus' death to be according to the plan, uh, according to God's plan, and namely a plan that's revealed in the Old Testament. So I want to show that it's, it's actually more than a, a plan. It's actually the path to life. And uh, following that, I want to share three uh, three um, uh, points of application, and then I want to give you some incentive and some directives following that. So uh, that's what we want to do this morning. Now, with all of that having been said, let's take a look at at uh, John chapter 20, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 18. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away. Uh, from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going on toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the fine... He's stupid... I'm sorry... Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. 
And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we so thank you and praise you, Father, for this story that is recorded for our our edification, for building uh, us up and for your glory. And Father, we pray that you would be pleased to bless us this morning with understanding and bless us, O Father, with insight. And that, Father, you would take the truth and take the wonder of this event, this real historical event, and that you would apply it to our lives this morning, Father, Uh, that you, Father, would open our hearts and open our minds to see the reality that you are indeed alive and reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So, Father, use this for your glory. Meet us each where we are, Father. We're all in various places. And, Father, speak to us in a way that only you can. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, there's three things that are important when studying our Bibles, and you've heard me say this many, many times, but I don't think you get tired of hearing me say it, but they are context, context, and context. So let's begin by just taking a look at the context. Last week, we were looking at Palm, what we call Palm Sunday, and a lot has taken place uh, uh, since, um, since Palm Sunday. And if we just, um, in fact, in John's Gospel, really the end of chapter 12 to the conclusion of John's gospel really largely is about the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. So that gives you a kind of a idea of just how much takes place in that, in that final week. But if you take just leaf back and page back to John chapter 18, there in verse 1, uh, verses 1 really through I think verse 12 or verse 11, uh, we find the, uh, the betrayal Judas Iscariot, he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and Jesus is apprehended, he's arrested, and he's brought before the high priest, and he's brought before Annas, who is a former high priest, and then, and then shortly after to Caiaphas, who is the current high priest, and uh, he's brought there for a trial, which really is no trial, is a very much a kangaroo court, if you will. But following that, he's then brought to uh, Pilate, who is governor of the area. And we, uh, we have that starting really with verse uh, 28, um, where Jesus is uh, then brought before Pilate. And uh, Pilate finds Jesus innocent. If you look at verse 38, Pilate makes that famous, that famous statement, what is truth, in, terms, in, in, in the course of his interview of Jesus. Um, Pilate says, what is truth? And we're told in that verse that after this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So very quickly, Pilate, in his interview with Jesus, he very quickly sees that, uh, that, that Jesus is certainly not guilty of anything. In fact, he's innocent. And he realizes, we know elsewhere in the New Testament, that Pilate realizes that he's been handed over largely for envy. And um, he, he, he sees nothing uh, he finds no guilt in him. And if you look at verse, um, back to, uh, or verse 15, rather, 19, chapter 19 and verse 15, as, um, as uh, Pilate makes the, um, the claim that he sees, he sees no guilt in Jesus, notice uh, that they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. 
And Pilate responds to them and says, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answer, We have no king but Caesar. And then in verse 16, of course, he is delivered over to be crucified. And Jesus uh, hangs uh, on the cross for approximately six hours. And then if you look at verse 30 of John chapter 19, there's a very important statement that's made there in verse 30. Uh, after Jesus had, had hung on the cross and bore the agony of the wrath of God uh, in place of those whom he have come to save, bearing the, the sin debt uh, of those whom he has come to save, uh, Jesus uh, announces it is finished. And as he announces it is finished, we are told in that verse that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, meaning that he had indeed died. Now, uh, Jesus is then quickly buried because of the Passover. Uh, we're told in verse 31 that it was the day of preparation. What that means is the, the Passover feast was at hand, and they were making preparations for the Passover. And according to Jewish law, there would be no dead bodies hanging around because that would defile the land. So Jesus is very quickly, uh, and we might even say hastily buried. In verse 38, I'd like to read those verses, 38 and following. Uh, we're told that after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And this brings us to our sermon text this morning. You know, this, these things are all that we just read about and considered. They all take place on Friday. And of course, that's the reason um, the church observes Good Friday. Sometimes you go Good Friday. And, and um, the, these are the events that take place on Friday. Now, you'll notice the time reference in verse 1 of uh, John 20 on the first day of the week. Uh, that is on Sunday, Sunday morning. Uh, Mary Magdalene uh, comes to the tomb. Now, we know there are other women with Mary from the other gospel reports, but John focuses on Mary, uh, and that, that is the focus of this particular uh, passage right at, at this time. And Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. We're told it's very early, it's still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And probably many of us have seen pictures or maybe... Um, you know, maybe we've seen in various plays or we've seen on uh, even maybe film footage from uh, reenactments of this that might be on television that uh, these ancient tombs were, and I think I read somewhere that there's been about a thousand of them excavated now in, in, various, um, uh, in various degrees. But these ancient tombs were basically hollowed out of the rock. It had to have been extremely labor intensive to take hammer and chisel and cut an opening in the rock, and then actually um, hollow out a chamber that would be large enough that you could actually uh, bury a body in. So they would they would hollow out this uh, hole, if you will, and then they would hollow out the 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 um, uh, the rock, and they would they would um, they would carve a bench inside and a number of 
different things inside. And, and then a stone was fabricated, it was cut uh, to fit in the hole in order to seal the hole. And um, um, that's, that stone would then be placed over the, over the tomb after the body was buried. Now, when Mary arrives at the tomb, she discovers that this stone has been taken away. And uh, from there, I mean, obviously she's startled. She realizes that the, the tomb has been, has been interrupted. It's been, it's been messed with. And uh, so she, she ran to Simon Peter, verse 2, and to the other disciple, who is John. So she runs to Peter and John. And notice what she says. She says they have taken a, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So she, dis- she has discovered the tomb has been, has been interfered with. And she comes and she discovers that the body is missing. And she concludes from that that someone must have taken away uh, the body of Jesus. She runs to Peter and John. She tells them. And so Peter and John, they make their way to the site of the tomb. Uh, we're told that uh, they, they run and that actually John outruns Peter and reaches the tomb first. In verse 5, John stoops down to look in, and we're giving another detail here. As John looks in, he notices that the linen cloths are lying there, uh, but he didn't go in. Now, these are the burial, the burial cloths that, uh, that Jesus would have been uh, buried with. And then Simon Peter, uh, when, he, when he shows up, of course, he, he, he barges right into the tomb. You know, I, I presume that John is holding back as a as a really an act of reverence, but there you see the personality of Peter. Uh, he runs right into the tomb, and uh, he saw the linen cloth lying there. And we get another detail in verse seven: the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, was not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. And uh, then in verse nine, uh, we're given a detail that's really important. Uh, we're told that for as yet they did not understand the scripture. They did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now, I want to point your attention to verse 9 because if you, and some of you may be aware from reading John's gospel that uh, this actual phrase comes up on, on numerous occasions. In fact, I count 11 times, uh, namely where uh, there's a reference made according to the scripture. And I'm only counting those where scripture actually is used in the sentence. And I, I, you don't have to write these down, but just listen for a moment. The references are chapter 2 and verse 22. Then, cha- then, then it doesn't happen again until chapter 5, verse 39. And then in chapter 7, verse 38. Then in chapter 10, verse 35. Chapter 13, verse 18. And chapter 17, verse 12. So there we have six occurrences that are happening between chapters 2 and chapter 17. Now, set that aside, what we have after that are four occurrences that happen in chapter 19. So we see a bulk of these occurrences, actually, are happening in chapter 19. And I want to take you through them. If you turn back to chapter 19 and you look at verse 24, now the context is verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. Uh, one part for each soldier. Now, if you look down to verse 24, this was to fulfill the scripture. And then there's a, a citation from Psalm 22, which, which was prophesied approximately a thousand years 
before Jesus was crucified. They divided my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. About a thousand years earlier, we have this prophecy. And then the next one is in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to see it, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And that's in fulfillment of Psalm 69. Now, if you look down to verse 36, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. You see that phrase again, the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. This is in reference to, they want to get the bodies down because it's a day of preparation and they want to get them buried. They don't want these bodies defiling their land. That's their, their reasoning. And um, so they break the bones of one of the robbers that were crucified with Jesus. They break the bones of the other robber, but they discover that Jesus is dead and his bones do not get broken. And of course, this is in, this is in fulfillment of Psalm 34, but it also is in accordance to um, Old Testament Jewish law that the bones of the sacrificial lamb were not to be, were not to be broken. Uh, so there we see that uh, another fulfillment. And then if you look at verse 37, we have another one. And again, another scripture says, they will look upon, they will look on him whom they've pierced. And that's a fulfillment of Zechariah, given approximately 500 years before these events occur. Now I'm drawing, a, I'm drawing your attention to this because John is drawing our attention to this. And what John wants us to see is that these things that are taking place are taking place according to the Old Testament scriptures. Now, going a step further than that, we could say that these things are taking place in accordance to the plan of God. And we could even go a step further in in using Peter's words, and, and I invite you to keep your place in John 20 and turn to Acts chapter 2. And those who have been studying Acts um, on Wednesday night, this is a review for you. But if you turn to Acts chapter 2, which is the next book, just turn to the next book. You have John and Acts follows. So you turn to the next book, just a couple of pages, and you come to Acts chapter 2. And, you know, what's going on in Acts chapter 2 is Jesus is making good on his promise. He said that when he would left, he, when he left his disciples, he would send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is now descending upon the community of people that are gathered there, and they can't figure out what's, uh, many people can't figure out what's happening. What in the world is happening? And Peter stands up in order to interpret what's happening uh, through the scriptures. He says in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to, and there you see the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then after making this statement, Peter points our attention to one of those promises from the Old Testament. Uh, And that namely is Psalm 16, Uh, Psalm 16, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. 
Now notice what's being said there. What is David saying? What is David saying in this psalm? And what is Peter drawing our attention to? He's saying that a thousand years earlier, uh, by the pen of King David, he said, "You will not abandon my soul to Hades." Now, what is Hades? Hades is the grave. It's the place of the dead. You know, when we were reciting the the Apostles' Creed, and we said he descended into hell. This is what we really mean by that. You'll notice there, there was an asterisk next to hell, and there's a footnote below it. And, and what's being pointed to is what the Old Testament might call Sheol, or what the New Testament would call Hades, and, and that's simply the place of the dead. That is the grave. What's being said there is that he has died. Um, and, and what David is saying, uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what he is saying, he is saying, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. You will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. That corruption would refer to the, the decay of the body as it laid in the grave. And what is David doing? Well, David actually is prophesying the events that we're reading about here, the events, namely, of Jesus being buried in the tomb and being raised again. Uh, from uh, from the dead. So um, here we see that all of this is according to the plan of God. Now I want to draw your attention to verse 28 because a lot of times we forget about verse 28. We develop verse 27, but we don't go further and develop. Notice he still gives us verse 28. He says, you have made known to me the path of life. And that's really where I got the idea for the title of this message is the path of life. Jesus must rise according to the definite plan of God, a plan that is foretold in the Scriptures, and a plan that is literally the path of life. Now, if we return back to John 20, let's return to our, let's return to our story here. And if you look at verse 8, you'll see there that, that John, who reached the tomb first, uh, he, he goes in, after Peter goes in to the tomb, John goes into the tomb, and, 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 and John, he, he saw and believed. So here we see John actually uh, believes. Now, what did he see? Well, he sees an empty tomb, and he sees the grave cloths. And probably concludes, listen, if someone would have stole the body, it's, 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 it would be really unusual for them to undress the body, leave the grave clothes behind and steal the body. Besides that, we know from other, uh, from the other, te- the testimony of the other gospels that there were guards posted there. Uh, the, the, the chief priests and Pharisees were worried that someone would steal the body, so they posted guards there. So who's going to try to sneak past the guards, roll a stone away, or pull a stone away, and then take the time to unbury, or un- unravel the grave cloths? Um, John is looking at this, and John, we're told, he believes. Uh, but uh, Peter, uh, as John and Peter go back to their homes, Peter is, Peter, Peter is yet to come around. And of course, notice Mary in verse 11. Uh, Mary, Mary has not come around yet. Mary is, she, she remains behind, weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped down to look into the tomb. And to her astonishment, she sees two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. There's one at the head and one at the feet. And they, and they ask her in verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. You see, Mary still has the same conclusion. Her conclusion hasn't been changed really in any way yet. Her conclusion is this. The body is missing. Jesus is dead. Therefore, someone must have taken the body. Now, uh, in verse 14, having said this, 
She turned around and saw Jesus standing, but did not know that it was Jesus. In verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Same question that the angels ask. But notice, Jesus probes the heart. Jesus doesn't just ask the same question. Notice how he probes Mary's heart. He says, Whom are you seeking? And that's, 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 that's our master. That's our savior. He probes our hearts. He doesn't just ask the surface questions. He's asking the questions that are lurking down beneath the surface. Whom are you seeking, Mary? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away, still maintaining he's dead. And someone has taken him away. But then Jesus says to her, Mary. And she turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabbinai which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, obviously she is clinging to him at this point. She reaches and she grabs him. This is her greatest heart desire. Where is Jesus? Expecting him to be dead so she can, she can, she can just pay one last devotion to him. But there she sees him alive and she takes a hold of him and she clings him. And Jesus says, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. We'll, we'll revisit that here in a few minutes. And then in verse 18, Mary Magdalene goes back, announces to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. Now, what do we have happening here? What we have happening here is that John believes at the, at the site of the tomb. Uh, Mary, uh, uh, Mary, not so quickly. And one of the things I want to bring to your attention here is how uh, salvation is a process. Now, let me let me be careful because I've said this and I've said this over the years, and and there's been folks that have called called me aside afterwards and said, "Wait a second, explain to me what you mean by salvation being a process." I do not mean that justification is a process. Justification is immediate. As soon as we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, we are immediately justified. But what I'm talking about is that process of coming from unbelief to belief is a process. It's a process. And it's a process that may be, it may be weeks for some of us. It may be months for some of us. It may be years for some of us. It may be a lifelong journey for some of us. But coming from unbelief to belief. Here we see John believes at the sight of the empty tomb. We see that Mary, Mary believes as Jesus reveals himself to her. And that will be the case with Peter and the others. Uh, they believe as Jesus reveals himself to them. But my point here is all of them have been with Jesus for some time. They've all spent all this time with Jesus, but they haven't come quite full circle in believing Jesus in terms of who he is. Their identity, their, their idea of Jesus' identity has been, has been colored all this time, all the way really until beginning now. And it's been a process for them. And we can ask ourselves this question this morning. We can ask ourselves, where are we in this process? Has Jesus truly revealed himself to you? Or has he simply, maybe he has enlightened, maybe he has enlightened you. Uh, or maybe, maybe we're at the very beginning and we're just really starting to, to see, you know, what's going on with this? Uh, you know, we're just starting to do a search, you know. Perhaps we were like 
the disciples, you know, early on in the gospel testimony when they're, they're in their fishing boats and they're hearing about Jesus and they, they just simply go to check out uh, who he is. But you'll see there's a journey there. And, and we can ask ourselves, where are we uh, on this? Where are we on this journey? Uh, is Jesus really, uh, do we know Jesus as the Son of God, the living, risen Savior? Or are we somewhere between uh, really coming to that conclusion and, and reaching that conclusion? Let us ask a question. And I, I'm drawing your, your attention to this question because Mary gives us some direction here. You notice that after John, after John and Peter leave, Mary remains behind. Why? Mary is determined to get to Jesus. In her mind, he's, he's dead. But nevertheless, her persistence, you see her persistence. She doesn't give up. She has to find out where Jesus is. And Jesus rewards her, doesn't he? You know what? She is rewarded as being the first one to see him alive after his resurrection. She is the first one. That's why John is, is focusing on her. And it is her persistence and diligence that is rewarded. And that gives us incentive. So wherever you are on that continuum, please take a leaf out of Mary's book here and pursue. Do not let him go until he reveals himself to you. Now, I want to make a few applications here, as I promised in my introduction. And if you, if you look back with me to verse 1, what, what is the first thing that we come to in our story? The first thing that we come to in our story is a tomb. It's a tomb. Uh, it's a grave. But it's an empty grave. It's an empty grave. And the, the tomb is not only empty, but the grave cloths are left behind. You know, when Lazarus, you go back to John 11, you read about the, the raising of Lazarus there. He comes out with his grave cloths on. Lazarus will indeed die again. So it's fitting that he comes out with those grave cloths on. But Jesus removes those grave cloths because he's leaving that grave behind. He will not return to that grave because there is victory over the grave. This is one of the great applications of the resurrection, and that is victory over the grave. A grave is horrifying. And uh, in, in many of us, I mean, as I, look at, as I look at all of you here, I mean, you know, I, I would say that probably most of us are no stranger to the graveside. We've had that painful experience of being at the graveside and saying those goodbyes. And here, what do we have? Here we see Jesus as being victorious over the grave. The grave is empty. The grave is empty. And Jesus' victory over the grave is the believer's victory over the grave. Jesus has conquered the grave for his people, for all who put their faith and trust in him. And that leads to the second one, which is really related, but it goes a step further. And that is victory over death. Victory over death. If we're going to, we can't have victory over the grave if we don't have victory over death. And like right now, I mean, what is at the foundation of all the anxiety that so many people are experiencing right now? What is at the foundation of that anxiety? It is simply this. It's fear of death. It's fear of death. 
you know, over, over the years, I've had opportunity. On occasion, people have come to me uh, and have asked for counsel because they've been so gripped with the fear of death. I can remember on a couple of occasions people being so, so afraid of death that they were afraid to leave their home. They were afraid to get in their cars, just gripped with the fear of death. There's only one antidote to that, and that is the resurrection of Jesus because he is the only one who has victory over death. If a person is afraid of death and they're apart apart from Jesus, they've got every reason to be afraid of death because it's a permanent doorway. Once you go through that doorway, you can't come back. And wherever, whatever your destiny is, whatever decision you've ultimately made as you go through that, that doorway is yours for all eternity. So there's very good reason for a person who has yet to embrace Jesus to be afraid of death. Very good reason. But once the resurrection is explained, well, then everything changes. Jesus is not only victorious over the grave, he's victorious over death. The Apostle Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and Jesus' resurrection proves victory over death. Isaiah 25.8 says it this way. Listen to these words from Isaiah 25.8. He will swallow up death forever. Did you hear that? Our great enemy. There's nothing we're more afraid of than death. Our great enemy. God promises that he will swallow up death forever. And he has made good on that promise in Jesus Christ. He says he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. That is Isaiah 25, 8. Write that verse down. Read that verse this afternoon because it is one of the great promises of scripture. Jesus is victorious over death, so his people will be victorious over death. And actually, we don't have time to go into this this morning, but Paul, he actually develops that in in, in Ephesians and in Romans. He says, listen, Romans 6, you know, if we are in Christ Jesus, not only do we die with him, the old person dies with him, but we're also raised with him. And of course, that's a sermon for another day. But let me add to this, as we're talking about victory over death, what we, ought to, what we have immediately, immediately when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus is we have victory over spiritual death. And what do I mean by that? When we're born into this world, we're born into this world spiritually dead. That's why we don't believe. That's why we reject the truth. That's why we, that's why we hold our arms out like this and say, oh, you know, this Jesus stuff, knock it off. We're spiritually dead. We're blind. We, we, you know, we can't take that. We don't want to hear that. What the Holy Spirit has to do is he has to give us life so that we are now spiritually alive. And the moment we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, because of the resurrection, we can have this spiritual life. And the down payment of that spiritual life is, is um, the Holy Spirit coming into our hearts. And there's a third point of application I want to make. Not only do we have victory over the grave, Not only do we have victory over death, but we're showed here that death actually is the path to life. Death is the path to life. Jesus shows us that death, the famous uh, uh, English theologian John Owen wrote a book, and the title of the book was The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. You think about that title, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Death itself is indeed the path to life. Without death, if Jesus didn't die on the cross, then there could be no grave and tomb. And if there was no grave and tomb and no dead body, there could be no resurrection. 
So it was, through, it was through death. Death is the path of life. And if there would have been no death, there could have been no atonement for sin, and we would still be in our sins. So death to self, or I'm sorry, death is the path of life. And that leads to the next, the next point I want to make is, is death to self. You know, true saving faith, when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, true saving faith brings obedience with it. And this is one of the ways we can know. If someone wants to say, how do I know if I'm really truly believing in Jesus? Are you obeying him? That's how you know. Are you following him? Are you obeying him? Are you walking with him? And we know if we are or not. I mean, we can be honest because, you know, if you're, if you're truly in Jesus, you're not going to be perfect. But one thing's going to happen is, is when you've blown it, he is going to let you know about it. He's going to let you know for sure. You'll be convicted. You know, when you've told a lie, you're told something that's not truth. Oh, he's going to convict you. He's, he's, going, to, he's going to stir your heart up. And, and, and that's what's going to happen. And this is one of the ways that we know if we're in Christ Jesus. And if we're in Christ Jesus, we're called actually to die to self. And actually, it's, it's, it's paradoxical to us. It doesn't, it, at the start, it doesn't seem to make sense. How can we have life if we die to self? Luke 9, 23 and to, through 25, Jesus, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus says this. He says, if anyone would come after me. And notice he doesn't say, if anyone's a Christian. He says, if anyone would come after me. Okay? If anyone would come after me. That is, if anyone would be my disciple. If anyone would be my follower. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So there's that denial of self, that dying to self. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You see, it's that the path to life is death. Jesus leads the way. And verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This, this needs to be so broadcast in our culture because the agenda today is to accumulate as much stuff as we possibly can accumulate. And really, I mean, I could have all of the money of Mike Bloomberg, but what good is it going to do me? How much longer am I going to be able to enjoy it? How many more years do I have? I don't know that I don't have, I don't know that I have another hour, to be honest with you, but in all likelihood... Statistically speaking, I probably have another 20 or maybe 25 years. But what is 20 or 25 years to enjoy these billions of dollars? It's just, it's just, it's just rubbish. Now, I, I'm pointing this to your attention because this is why so many, this is why so many currently do not enjoy the presence of Christ or the victory over uh, the victory and joy of salvation. It's because of love of self and it's love of the world. And what do I mean by love of self? Well, do I mean like we can't take our, our, we can't like walk away from a mirror? Uh, Well, maybe that could be it, but I really don't have that, you know. And Jesus, you know, I've heard people say, listen, Jesus, (laughs) Jesus said, pick up and take your cross. Don't pick up and take your mirror. I've heard people say that. Uh, And it, you know, I mean, that, that may be some of us where, you know, we're, 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 we're in love with ourselves and we love looking in the mirror, but that's not really what I have in mind. What I have in mind is, is this idea of putting self, you know, look out for number one, putting self first, putting self, because self always wants to do the wrong thing. Self always wants to follow the way of the world. So the love of self, the love of the world, uh, these are, 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 these are numbing. This is like anesthetic uh, to the joy and, and the presence of Christ Jesus. 
Uh, a love of self and, and the love of the world will numb our hearts toward Jesus. How can we know? How can we know if we're being numbed by these things? If you're hesitant to come to a church, if you're hesitant to come to church, you have to ask yourself why. Why am I hesitant to come to church? Why, why, why am I hesitant? Well, because something has a hold of your heart. Something besides Jesus has a hold of your heart. That, that's plain and simple. It's that simple. Don't make it any more complicated than that. Why am I hesitant to read and study my Bible? Something has a hold of my heart. Maybe there's a television program I'd rather watch. Is that television program wholesome? I doubt it. Probably not. But that's where our hearts are. And you can go down the list. Why am I not praying and spending time with God? Why do I find God boring? Something else has your heart. And that's something else you find exciting. And you see, that something else numbs our hearts to the Lord. It numbs us. Now, dying to self is so very, very difficult. And we cannot do it in our own strength. We can only do it in God's strength. So I want to give you some incentives, actually. I think we need to have some incentives to do this. And the first one that I want to give you, comes they all come right from our text. But the first incentive is that Jesus is alive. Now, that would be incentive right there, but we might be afraid. If Jesus is alive and we have sinned against him, that could, that could cause fear. But no, listen really carefully. Jesus is alive and he's not only alive, he is calling you to come to him. He's not only alive. And I don't care how long you've been walking with him or whether you've never come to him at all. It's the same message for us all. I've been walking with him for a long time, and I am very excited about this first point, because my Savior, Jesus, is alive. It, this, this, this text reminds me, Jesus is alive. And here's the great news. He's not just alive. He wants you and is calling you to come to him. Why? Because of his joy. What is his joy? You are his joy. How do I know if I'm his joy? You come to him. That's how you know, and you'll discover you are his joy as you come to him. And someone will say, well, how do I know I can come to him? Well, you can know this because he promises he will turn no one away who comes to him. He promises that if you come to him, he will turn nobody away. We behold Jesus by faith. We behold Jesus as we look in the scriptures, and there we see his beauty. We see his majesty, his grace. And of course, what does this do? As I said Friday night, this leads us to begin to see ourselves the first time. As we see Jesus, we see ourselves, and then we see ourselves all broken up in ways that we didn't even know we could see ourselves. And this is where it even gets better. That's painful for sure, but this is where it gets better because then we look to Jesus and we repent of this and we discover that Jesus actually had suffered on that cross. He suffered on that cross to take that filth away from us. And that's where we just, listen, it's through repentance that we really, it magnifies His grace, it magnifies His glory, it magnifies, it magnifies Him. It makes you want to follow Him even more. It makes you want to come forward with even more stuff. And what do you discover when you come forward with more stuff? He takes it away. He knew about it before He ever come to Him. Why? He had it, 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 it's been itemized and it's been credited to His account on the cross. He knew about it all. Yet He still wanted you. And he still wanted me. And this leads to the second point that I want to make. Incentives to die to self. The joy of cleansing and forgiveness. The joy of cleansing and forgiveness. What does guilt do? Guilt brings shame. Shame and guilt are two of the, two of the worst emotions that we can possibly have. I think grief is, is in there too. But guilt and shame are terrible, crushing emotions. 
and the joy of cleansing and forgiveness. Listen to this great promise. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful melody is that. And not only not only does He forgive us, but He cleanses us. It's like we can get a bath. And when we take this bath, what happens? Our guilt and our shame gets washed away. The, the, all impurities and all that defilement gets washed away. And Jesus covers us. When he, when he dresses us after this bath, He dresses us with His perfect righteousness. He does this for everybody who comes to Him in saving faith. And of course, Jesus comes to give uh, all who believe victory over the grave and death. As we're thinking about the the, the problem of dying to self and the problem of dying to this world, and letting go of this world. What a great incentive, victory over the grave and death, which is certainly going to come. We are going to end up in a grave. We are going to die unless Jesus, unless Jesus shows up before, before our lifespan is over. We are headed for a grave. We're 25, 24 hours closer now than we were this time yesterday. But we can have victory over that grave. We can have victory over the death. And listen to this one, intimacy. If you go back to chapter 20 and you look at verse 17, notice what Jesus says to Mary. Mary is clinging to him. He, he, you know, he, he's alive. She's clinging to him. She's looking for a dead Jesus. She's looking for her Lord and Savior who's dead. And, 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 he, and he reveals himself and, she's, and he's alive and she clings to him. And, and notice what he says. He says, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers. Hear that? Go to my brothers. Who is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the disciples. Are those guys that abandoned him when he was arrested? Yeah, those characters. He wants, he wants Mary to go back to his brothers. Notice how he references them. He references them as brothers. Go back to my brothers. Say to, the, say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God, and your God. Jesus is calling us to intimacy with God and such intimacy that we actually, everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus, are adopted. We're brought in. We're adopted. And listen to this. Listen to this one. Listen carefully to this one. You're not just adopted as a secondary son or daughter. When you are adopted by God the Father, he loves you with the same exact love that He loves Jesus. We'd have to be absolutely insane to turn that down. We'd have, we, there would have to be something wrong with us to turn that down. Something absolutely wrong. Intimacy instead of estrangement. Why be estranged? from God. Why be so far away from God when Jesus' hands are wide open like this to take us? Love instead of wrath. You know, our culture doesn't understand. Our culture does not understand that unbelief is no small thing. You know, John chapter 3, if you look there with me, if you look to the verse, John 3.16 gets up on the billboard and we see John 3.16 along the road. But the verse we really need along the road is verse 36. It doesn't make it on the billboard. But verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath remains on him. So apart from true saving faith, not mere mental assent, that Jesus is alive and all that, not mere mental assent, it won't get you there. The wrath is still upon you. 
true saving faith. We're talking Mary clinging to Jesus, Rabbi. We're talking John seeing Jesus or seeing the empty grave and believing. We're talking about this true saving, life transforming faith. That's the only faith that will get you there. That is it. Why should we remain estranged? Unbelief brings God's wrath upon him. With saving faith and saving faith, he showers us with his steadfast love. And we have the privilege of adoption. Uh, one more, Jesus' constant presence. Jesus says to Mary, do not cling to me. And, and that's, that confuses a lot of people. What is meant by that? It's really simple. What is meant by that? Jesus wants Mary to understand that the, that the arrangement is going to be different now. She, she needs to, he needs to tell her, it's not going to be like it was during my earthly ministry where, you know, we're all going to be like parading up and down the Holy Land like we did. No, I'm going to the Father and, we're, and, and, and everything's going to be different now. But here's the good news. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can dwell in your heart. And, and this actually is a better arrangement. Sometimes we don't think it's a better arrangement, but there were a lot of people during Jesus' earthly ministry who only saw Jesus one time, one time. But listen, each one of us who puts our faith and trust in Jesus, each one of us, we can actually be with Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week by virtue of the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. And Jesus, this is how Jesus can say, listen, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that constant presence. And I want to give a directive here and then I'll conclude. And you know, the last directive that I want to give is, are we seeking this communion with God? And, and here, you know, I, I speak to those who have been walking with Jesus for quite some time. And I just want to ask, are we seeking constant communion with Jesus? Are we seeking constant communion? You know, we can, we can start out that way. And I think all of us start out that way. But if we continued that way, you know, Jesus would tell the church, listen, I have this against you. The church of Ephesus says, I have this against you. You've given up your first love. Are we seeking constant communion uh, with the Lord? Things can come in. Things can come into our life like children or getting married or um, a new house. All kinds of things can get in the way of that constant communion. And these things can crowd. Like I've said, they can numb us. You know, for some, it's, it's, it, it could be children. You know, it could be children. And Here's the thing. We have to love Jesus. We're, we're called to love Jesus and to, and to cling to Jesus more than anything else in this world. And that even includes our children, which we, we hear that. And I've shared this before. And I know for some of us, that's staggering. We say, wait a second. There's no way I could love anyone more than I love my, my children. Uh, but here's the thing. We're called to love Jesus more than we even love our children. And it's really important that we do that. And let me explain why. Let me ask you a question. Do you, want you, do you want your children to put Jesus first? And I can't imagine anybody who's tuned in here this morning would say no. We all want our children to put Jesus first. Think of all the trouble and all of the pain that will keep our children from if Jesus is first in their life. Think about the dangers of drugs and the dangers of all those things that we worry about and stay up all night about. If Jesus is first in that child's life, they, 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 he's not going to lead them down those roads. Now, now, putting Jesus first in our hearts will teach them to put Jesus first in theirs. And listen, our kids know whether Jesus is first in our hearts or not, man. They, they know. <laughs> they know. You just can't, you just can't hide that. Um, you can't hide that. Um, do you want them to have constant communion with Jesus? Of course you do. Who wouldn't want their children to have constant communion with Jesus? That's what we want. And then, 
then why would we want them to act differently than us? If they do not see us seeking constant communion with Jesus, they're not going to do it either. Uh, So we want to seek constant communion with Jesus, and they'll imitate what they see. That's not foolproof. It's not foolproof, but they'll have a tendency to imitate what they see. At least you're laying down the foundation. And then thirdly, do do you want to be the best parent that you can be? And I know the answer to that is yes. How can we be the best parent that we can possibly be? We put Jesus first because what Jesus will do is empower us to be the best parents that we can be. It's not something we can do in our own strength. And in fact, why would we want to do it in our own strength when Jesus is offering us his? But we have to put us first. But as we put us, as we put him first, uh, he empowers us to be the best parents we can be. Someone, someone may not even have children. And actually for some, maybe some are putting a spouse first. Maybe if we think about, if we look down our, our inventory of love and we think, well, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't love Jesus as much as I love my spouse. Listen, the same thing that applies to children applies to that too. You know, we, we've got, you know, Tammy is in the room with me right now. And, and um, my, I, you know, what do I want? I want Tammy to have Jesus way ahead of me. And Tammy needs me to have Jesus way ahead of her. Now, for one, for starters, it, it, would, be a, it would be a terrible thing for me to want Tammy to have me ahead of Jesus. I would be asking Tammy to ruin her soul for me. That would be a terrible thing. We want Jesus. I want Tammy to have Jesus ahead of me. Uh, Tammy needs me to have Jesus ahead of her. Why? Well, he will transform our relationship. He'll transform our marriage. What is Jesus on about? God reveals himself as a father. He is family-oriented. He will empower us and lead us to be the best parents. He will empower us and lead us to be the best spouses. So children, are a, they're a blessing, but they also can be a stumbling block. And we have to make sure that our love, our, our love is, is to Christ first and foremost. And we're seeking that communion with Him. For many, it's stuff. In our culture, it's stuff. You know, stuff gets in the way and, and, and it's all this stuff. Listen, when you take one look at Jesus, one look at Jesus, and you know what you'll quickly discover? You'll quickly discover that your stuff is nothing but rubbish. It's nothing but rubbish. So in conclusion, Jesus teaches us the path of life, victory over the grave, victory over death, life and intimacy with him, victory over sin. And looking to the risen Christ, let us recommit ourselves to dying to self and living to Jesus. And in this new victorious life he has provided, for he is the path of life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we so thank you and we so praise you, Father that, Lord, you are a good and gracious God, such a good and gracious God that, Lord, you would come in the person of Jesus and die on the cross that we could have life. Oh, Father, we so thank you. And, Father, we so praise you for this life. And, Father, we ask, Lord, that, Lord, you would show and reveal yourself to us afresh this morning, Lord, that, Father, we would embrace you afresh and that we would find ourselves renewed, revigorated, and given life We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.